There's no one thing to do. There is no single thing that is driving the great resignation. So what we've seen where organizations are looking at it is it's pretty much that the use of data to understand where it matters for you. We advise against the read the press, decide that's your reality and follow the press. We actually think that that's a really, really bad way to do strategy. What we've seen with customers that are retaining folks is they use the data, they identify the population that is most impacted, and they double down on that specific population. That was Vizier VP of People Analytics, Ian Cook. And in this episode, it was great to sit down at the end and talk about the evolution of the people analytics space and really dig into a recent article he wrote for Harvard Business Review, uh, digging into a massive data set to uncover what were some of the drivers in the great resignation. So we'll be back with that conversation and more after a brief word from our sponsor. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, powering fast-growing companies like Shopify, Rubrik, and Sneak. Automate messages across the employee journey so you never miss an opportunity and your employees are supported every step of the way. From onboarding to becoming a new manager and more, PIN helps companies communicate at scale. Go to pinhq.com for more information. That's pynhq.com. Reinvent communications for the distributed workforce. And now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Redefining HR. This is the debut episode of the seventh season of the podcast. Feels weird to say that, but it's it's actually true. And I'm really excited to be kicking off this season of the podcast with Ian Cook. Ian is the VP of People Analytics at Vizier. Uh, he wrote a really thoughtful piece in HBR recently, um, digging into some of their data and what's driving the the great resignation, the great realignment, the great reshuffle. We could spend the whole podcast talking about different euphemisms of what we're experiencing right now, but you all know what it is and you probably have your own word for it and that's cool. So we're going to get into um, Ian's career in people analytics. We're going to get into um, how they use people analytics at Vizier, and we're really going to break down some of the data. They had a massive data set that they re- that Ian reviewed for that uh, HBR piece, um, and so we're going to get into that and hopefully extract some insights for all of you that are on the front lines of the great whatever you want to call it, uh, how you might be able to retain talent more effectively. And we're also going to be spending some time just talking about the importance of building people analytics capabilities within people teams. And especially for those of you on the earlier stage of that journey, what you want to be doing and pitfalls you may want to look out for. So Ian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I'd love to have you just start and introduce yourself to the audience. I started off working in what I call organizational development, organizational effectiveness leadership teams, like how do you put a bunch of people together to really um, make a business thrive? That was a, a fascination that I, that I found straight out of university. From that, I, I discovered what I call, I describe it as the CFO challenge, where you're, you've got this great people program, but you can't get it funded. You can't articulate why it's going to make a difference. You know it is because you, you see the world through the people lens, but you can't do it through the finance lens. So that sort of pushed me back to do a bunch of learning. And I got into the analytics side, like how do we understand human behavior? How do we put numbers against that so we can explain the effect it has on the business? Came to Canada with my wife in 2004, just as the economy was kicking up. It, it was a fortunate piece of timing. Um, and then, you know, through that, built out a, a benchmarking business across Canada to start with. That was sort of back in 2007. Great time to launch a new business. <laughs> but we started collecting data on aggregate, 
producing quarterly insights. You know, what's my HR workload? What's my turnover rate? Those kinds of things. And that was a little bit ahead of its time. People were interested, but what their real challenge was is like, how do I understand what's going on for me? And so then Vizier started around about the same time. Uh, I joined fairly shortly after it started. Nine years later, I've been the solution consultant trying to you know promote the, the thing, the product manager, manager building the thing. Um, and now I tr I'm spending my time researching what's going on so we can help continue to educate, articulate for HR leaders how people analytics shapes, builds, you know, really helps their people strategy. So it's it's less of a you know classic, I went to this job to this job to this job, and more of a kind of career pursuit of like how do we use data to explain to the business how they do the right things by their people. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, you you mentioned kind of back, you started really being focused in people analytics space in 2007. And and the people analytics space has evolved dramatically since then, um, the level of sophistication and capability that we now have in best-in-class teams is light years ahead of, of where we were there. And I'm curious, as somebody who's been kind of deeply embedded in the people analytics space for the last you know 15 plus years, how do you see that evolution in terms of how kind of core HR teams are thinking about data and people analytics then versus how they think about it today? Yeah, we, we've we kind of cataloged it and we agree with a, a few other commentators around this. We're, we're kind of in the third wave. Like my, my very first analytics project was back in 2000s. Um, I did a, an ROI study on return on learning. So at three banking clients, we were looking at coaching programs and we tried to tie a, a financial return to whether those coaching programs actually did anything. So I learned a lot from that because it's extremely hard to attach dollars to soft skills. And so it was, a, it was, a, I would say like those, those years, it was, a, it was a dream. It was a, you know, people had a con conceptualization of what was possible. And then if they had the time and the bandwidth and the energy, they would use Excel, whatever it was to build kind of proof points. And so they often one-off projects, sort of a pioneering phase of here's what we could do. Like we can actually get the data, you know, check. Oh, we didn't know we could do that. Now we can process the data, check. Now we've answered something interesting. Um, and then there was a wave where it started to become uh, standardized. Um, and that was like this, the second wave where um, people understood how to actually build infrastructure. I get my data in one place. I have standard measures on top. I have common things that I share to the business and I share it to lots of people. And again, the, the pioneers went about uh, some, some using tools like ours, some building it with uh, the available tools. So I'll, I'll leave the technology piece aside. Um, the pioneers started to actually establish a function. You know, the first wave, it was individuals curiously doing sort of unique research projects that were passion plays. Then people analytics became a function. And it used to attach in a lot of different places. Like it used to be sometimes in compensation, sometimes HRIS, you know, sometimes another part of the business completely. Uh, but we started to see what works, what doesn't work, what are common pitfalls, like how do you actually build out this function and, and embed it within the HR practice. Now we're in this way where it's like, you know, if you don't have it, you're you're behind. Yeah. Like we're in that classic adoption curve. Like the number of people who I mean our our leading practitioners are doing like it's it's uh really rewarding, inspiring for me what our leading practitioners are doing. Uh, the kinds of conversations they're in, the kinds of changes and benefits they're bringing to the employees. Um, and then we have a lot of other folks who's like, you know, we, we, we haven't been getting to this. Like, how do we get started? How do we get stood up? Like, 
Where's the path that I can follow that gets me to success fast? So it's, it's kind of gone through that, that wave as an emerging practice. Um, it hasn't been a practice and that's kind of been one of the things that held people back. So we are now in the, you better, you better get after it because your competition has it and it's making a difference. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting to see how the space has evolved. And I think, you know, for you, so obviously, um, when you joined Vizier, uh, nine years ago, you've had a range of different roles there before your current role of people analytics, um, for viewers and listeners that aren't familiar with Vizier, um, maybe if you can just give an overview of, you know, the company, the tool, and then spend a bit of time talking more about your role and kind of, uh, you know, what you do in your role as VP of people analytics. Sure. I'll, I'll give you the, the part of history. So the, Vizier is a company, um, was founded by individuals from the BI space, the people who built Crystal Decisions, people who worked for SAP, building out their analytics stack. It was founded on the realization that a lot of technology was great for IT because they could make things, but it really didn't serve the business. Did not put the answer in the hand of the decision maker. It, it got a chart on a page. So Vizier's founding philosophy was like, how do we build technology where the business user is actually excited and use it to make a difference. We're all about making a difference. And so over the years, what we've built is, is actually the reverse of what is classically done for BI. You get the data in one place, you stick on uh, some modeling tool to work out what to do with the data. You stick on a visualization layer to share it, and then you hope people come. We actually started with the business questions. It's like, how, what do you want to know about turnover? What do you want to know about movement? What do you want to know about women's opportunity to be in different roles inside your business? We categorize those business questions and that's the role I played. And then we work backwards from that to like, how do you measure it? How do you, do you explain it to a user? How do you then calculate it? And where's the source data? So what Vizier does very simply is in a single rentable or SaaS so or software as a service in a single rentable technology stack, we take your raw data and we deliver an answer to the critical people questions and all of the cleansing, preparation, modeling, security, and distribution is handled by the technology. It also has domain expertise written into it, um, which means you don't have to argue with 10 people about the right version of resignation rate. You can use ours. We've been at it for a long time. We know it works. We have a lot of people who trust it. You, you don't need to go through that whole, um, what average should we use debate? You just start getting on and actually using the answer, which we think is the, the, the important piece. And so we work with enterprise clients and we're literally the, uh, we're the anchor for their, their technology stack uh, as they uh, automate and produce and distribute people on to, to literally thousands of users. Yeah. And so you, I'm curious, like, how do you use your tool internally? Uh, right. Like obviously, you know, you, you have access to things before they're even released to your customers. So how does, how does leveraging a tool like Vizier influence your, your people and talent strategy? What are, what are you doing differently? Um, because of the, the centricity of, of data and analytics to help inform and support the, the people and talent strategy. You, you give me the chance to tell one of my favorite stories, Lars. So, so we have this visualization in the application that looks at total movement inside the business. Um, informally, we call it the Death Star because it's a circle with a circle inside. So it looks like the Death Star, but it shows how many people joined, how many people left, and then how many people moved internally. And it puts it all on one chart. So there's several different measures in there and there's different ways of measuring all combined into one chart. We built it because often HR only gets measured 
from finance or the, from the CEO from the ins and outs, like the net change in headcount. It's like, wow, we're only 10 people different. What have you folk been doing? Like, why, 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 why is it always hard to get a meeting with you? When you actually look at the volume of transactions that come from that movement, that 10 net change could be 200 transactions, 50 people starting, 20 people leaving, 30 or 40 people moving internally. And you and I know that for every HR group, every single transaction is a piece of work. And so we designed it that way so that you can kind of put it on a page and you can have that conversation with an executive where you're you're not going through a table and saying, look how big this is. You're just boom, clean, beautiful, clear. So the moment of joy for us was when our, our chief people officer put it up in our executive meeting and explained exactly that to our CEO um, and, and, and had that moment of awakening. It's like, all oh, right, right. This is like, this is why HR is actually needs the people and support and the resource that it needs because he had just been saying, oh, well, we're five people more. Like that's five people. What are you folks doing? And it was actually about 50 transactions. So we use it. We use it in every executive meeting. Um, it's used by all of our people managers. We have actually built out our diversity um, drives in that. We have a we have a diversity program uh, spearheaded by Paul Rubenstein, our chief people officer. Again, he's spoken about that publicly, but we we use it to drive action. It, it is everybody in the business has access to it. So because um, we we and again like we, we're doing this not because we think it's a good business. Like we genuinely believe it's the right way to run a business. Yeah, and it's interesting. I think that um, the visualization that that actually represents the the task impact of all of those different um, you know movements, transactions, uh, everything is is really interesting because I think uh, again, you you know, most CEOs will see the top line data, you know, thirty hires, you know, ten departures, et cetera, but they you know they don't have a correlation in their mind to the level of work and effort from the people team to support all of those, you know, and that's just kind of comers and leavers and movers. That's like a very small subset of overall of what the people function is doing. So it's really interesting. Um, I want to dig into your HBR piece because you, you know, the, the data set you reviewed for the piece was massive, over 9 million employee records, uh, over 4,000 companies uh, with the, just a deep dive on what is driving the the great resignation. And I'm just going to use that term. It's not necessarily the right term, but it's the most common one. So let, we'll just keep it easy. Um, as you dug into that data set, and I definitely I'll include a link to the article in the show notes um, for viewers. And I encourage you to read it because it does some really interesting uh, and eye-opening data in there. But what surprised you the most? Did you have any assumptions uh, before digging into that data that after reading that burst uh, and it maybe had you thinking differently about what's happening in this moment in time. Yes, and yes. So let, let me explain the data set to start with so people know where this comes from. Vizier persists everybody's data from their core HRS in a common data model. So when you send me your data, a woman is a woman, and then it, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, tenant one, tenant two, tenant three, there was a woman. We've got aggregation rights because we we provide these benchmarks back to customers for use. So there's like a virtuous cycle of like, give us your data, we'll tell you how you match up against your peers. So we we have we got a, a data science team that have then built security on top of that, so we can't see individual pieces. So that's the data set we interrogate. Um, so it's it's not survey based on like I think I'm going to leave or so and so said they might leave. Like it's the event that's in the HRS that says so and so left. Um, 
we often get data daily. So we actually have, you know, I, I can go look at December's resignation rate because it's it's now up to date. So that's the data source. And so it's broken down by age bands, by gender, by EEOC functions. Um, and I'd lived through the 07 um, recession and had kind of spidey senses that a lot of movement happens. Again, lots of CEOs and the, the assumption in the of the public is like, we're in lockdown. There's no jobs. Everybody's hunkering down. Everybody's staying still. And it's like, no, no, like prior recessions, that hasn't happened. There's actually been a lot of internal movement within the market. So we, we pulled out the data and looked. The two, one of the things I expected was like early tenure people who are young would be moving at, at volume. You know, lots of people when the great resignation thing came out said, oh, it's all of the, it's all of the young generation who've paused and they're just on catch up. Like, you know, if you were expecting 100 people to leave, only 20 did, then there's 80 people who want to leave, move that forward a year, bang, you've got catch-up. So the catch-up measure was there. What really surprised me was the the the, the longer tenured employees, like the, the 5 to 10, 10 to 15 tenure band, and then the, the big increase for the uh, um, more seasoned professional, <laughs> to use that language. So it's the 30 to 35, 45-year-olds, it, it was that uh, people who'd been with the business for a really long time. You know, there's a there's a tail off. The, the longer you've been with the business, the more kind of embedded you are, the more change feels like a big step. So the less volume of resignations you see. And we, we saw, again, just a really big spike in that population. So that was a, um, that was a surprise. I think it's what we went to test, but the extent to which it was there was kind of like, whoa, this is... There is something significant happening uh, here. And then the other piece that came out in our data was the like the resignation rates for women and men would kind of varied um, starting in September of 2020, if I remember rightly, they separated. So women's rate of movement became consistently higher than men's rate of movement. Saying that, again, just reinforcing what, we, what we'd heard, that the effects on women of the pandemic are um, varied. What was slightly different is that we are of the view that these women were, were staying in work. They weren't leaving the workforce, they were staying in work and um, accessing flexibility, accessing the choice they had to improve the way that work worked for them. So, you know, not the negative story of 2020 was like, I'm leaving to handle my home life, but more of a positive story of the flexibility that is now being provided by some employers of, you know what, I can do this and I can manage my other responsibility so i'm going to make a change so those i mean there's a lot in there but those were the big things that were like whoa i you know we knew there was something there but the actual the evidence in the data was really stark clear more as pronounced than i'd expected hey everyone i'm excited to introduce you to the new amplify accelerator platform the Amplify and Redefining HR ecosystem have evolved quite a bit over the last two years, starting with a podcast, growing to a book, and now leading to a full platform aimed at developing and supporting the next generation of chief people officers. You know, the mission of Amplify is accelerating innovation at scale, and we now do that through HR executive search services, cohort courses, communities, jobs, and media. That includes the podcast and the book. So you can check all of this out at AmplifyTalent.com. And now back to the show.
you know, as you dug into the data, were, were you able to identify any kind of common markers of things that uh, were either causing turnover or causing retention? Like were there, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the viewers and, and uh, listeners right now are like, okay, like, yes, this is the reality, but like, what can we do to be, to be more sticky as an organization? It's, it's the question that everybody asks, and it's a great question. So we, we we're, I'm not looking at the data identified by a specific company. So I can't say that company A has done X and that's mean, mean their rate is less. That we, we don't do that for a whole host of reasons because um, data protection is, is absolutely paramount. So my customers will be pleased to hear me say, I can't do that because I can't, I can't get at the numbers. Like nobody in our business can get at the numbers that way. Um, what we've what we've seen and what we've been tracking and what we've been doing to to support that is looking at um, examples of our customers that they'll share with us publicly that they'll talk through, and what we what we know where a couple of things. There's no one thing to do. There is no single thing that is driving the great resignation. I use great resignation because I look at it from an employer perspective. You know, the event you're trying to prevent as an employer is a resignation. If I was to look at it from the opposite side, it's more of a reset. Lots of employees are resetting how they think about work. So. I'm kind of ambivalent on what you call it because I think it's different from different perspectives. So what we've seen where organizations are looking at it is it's pretty much that the use of data to understand where it matters for you. We advise against the read the press, decide that's your reality and follow the press. We actually think that that's a really, really bad way to do strategy. What we've seen with customers that are retaining folks is they use the data they identify the population that is most impacted and they double down on that specific population. And so, again, I can give you a story that was shared with us on a public forum that the organizations in the manufacturing space looked at its resignation patterns, looking at where they high, where they low. Within our application, you can get into like specifically who's at risk. You can get into patterns of is it women, is it men, is it low paid, high paid, tenure bands, anything you want to look at. So they ran through that. It's called a clustering analysis. They ran through that analysis. They identified there was a certain shift pattern that had a much, much higher rate for women. So they then go out and ask. I mean, this is the thing. Like analytics can get, often get you to the population. It can really tell you why because you're just not capturing the data on why. So, you know, they went out and asked specific individuals like, you know, we're surprised to see you leave. We're sorry to see you leave. We'd love to know what's driving that and if there's anything we could do to change that they discovered that this particular shift just did not work for the the other demands other time demands that women had so our people analytics team went to the operations team and said if we can't change this we're going to be short-staffed on these shifts they didn't turn it into they turned it into the business impact like vacancy hurts us in terms of running the machines which i think is a, a really important part of the story and they said well why is the shift this way it's just always been that way. You know, it was, it was designed in the era where labor is abundant and the machine has a certain pattern. So labor does what the machine needs. And so again, just ask that simple, curious question. Does it need to be this way? It's like, no, it doesn't. So they changed the shift. And, and that's that. Again, this is for me just a really nice, simple, you know, there's no crazy data science behind this. Like they didn't have to make a rocket in order to find this out. They just did some good statistical investigation and they engaged the business. They explained the so what of it not being fixed and they changed it. They changed the trajectory of that. So they're bringing more women back to work. 
And, and so that means the people that we see retaining, they are doing that process specifically for their business. And, and that's, that's often a tricky piece, Lars. People hear me tell the stories like, right, right, quick, change the shifts and women will come to work. It's like, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, understand what is material for that person, for that population, of then make the change and tell them you've made the change because you've listened to them. So you've built a relationship as opposed to the kind of break fix mentality of trying to solve the problem. Well, and I think, you know, you, that, that's a tremendous use case for people analytics. And as you mentioned earlier, kind of we're in this third wave now, um, third, you know, evolution of people analytics and, and really much like the field of HR, uh, it is a spectrum, right? You have, uh, leaders on one side who are doing predictive analytics and, you know, all kinds of, uh, very kind of data centric strategy. Uh, and then you have the other side that are still working off, um, spreadsheets, uh, or, or, or not leveraging data at all. And so what advice would you have, you know, somebody who's, you know, not here, they, they, you know, they, they're, they're working off your what advice you would give is in terms of best in class, uh, not in here because there's a long way for them to go. But for the core of the field, which I think is probably somewhere in the middle, um, they have reporting, they have metrics, um, you know, they have some kind of fundamental elements in place, but they want to elevate their game, which I think is probably the majority of the field right now. What advice do you have to those practitioners um, in terms of how they should be thinking about building a, a you know, kind of foundational progressive people analytics strategy that can scale? My fundamental advice is different from what they would typically hear from an IT group. An IT group are going to look at this as a data problem and a data only problem. So the traditional advice is like, oh, well, if you want to do more, you just have to get all your data together. And we've seen lots of those uh, projects, slide slip, fail, not get a result fast enough. So our advice is actually find an executive or a business unit leader in the business with a people challenge that they care about for which you can find the data and, and push like crazy to solve it. Because what we've seen through our time is that, the, you know, Building it like you'd build an HRIS or building it like you'd build a performance management, right? Where you can like, like you decide everything you need to do, you, you try and do everything, gets you mired in lots and lots of technical challenges and decisions where you don't actually know the end result. So you don't know the right decision. And then you're, you're dealing with people who don't know people data. So they build you the wrong thing. The number of times I've sat in a room where the IT group said, this is what you asked for. And the HR person said, no, it's not. And they, they cannot see each other's world. Um, no, I, I probably could have made a career out of being the translator. Um, instead, we just put it into our technology. Um, so finding that business challenge, and it can be really simple. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be sexy. It can be as simple as like we don't think we'll have capacity to get this done, or we're losing a certain demographic from this area, which is going to damage future innovation. Um, and then you reverse back from the business problem into the data and then you can just you, know, you can kind of decide on the tooling to solve for that process what we know is if you solve it and people like it and it shows a value people will come and ask for more and, and again this is where a classic mistake that we see made by people on team is they, they just try and do more uh, working with a, a really great individual out of the uk right now who's actually taken the stats like the, he's done this a couple of times and the business said, this is fantastic. We want to answer this question. He says, well, I can't. 
It's like, why not? I don't have the resource. I don't have the data. Like doing this by hand, making it as a in a in the same way I would you know get a loom and hand make a piece of cloth. Every time you want to make a new suit, I cannot operate that way. I need resource to be able to to automate. And so the it's having the whilst you have the the desire and the intent to help, it's having the gumption to say I can only help if I have the right level of investment. So it's it's we've seen lots of groups get caught. We call it the scalability. We we've hit it so often we actually call it the scalability wall. And I, I suspect it's where a lot of the people you're talking to, Lars, are is is they've built out a certain set of assets, often using you know Excel or their HIS or whatever other tooling is available in the business. But what happens is HR data has a, a level of security requirement that is higher than even finance because you, you need to be able to see some things on people and not others. And so you actually need this very complex layer of security. Most BI tools don't support that. The second is hierarchy changes. Like You'll know how often people get moved around. And every time they move around, the person consuming the data expects to see their people in their structure. And so if you have hierarchy built into your source data, you got to fix that. you got to go ask IT to go do it. So you can have a three-month lag on the right people in the right box. And so all of those things start to escalate where it's like, I actually have a, you know more people maintaining what I've built than I have people using what I've built. And then the scalability comes in. Well, we were serving 10 business unit leaders. Again, we had this from a a recent customer, she had five business unit leaders who she'd built a an analytic for specific business lines. They said, this is fantastic. I want each of my reports to have their version. So she went from five assets to 25 plus assets. And she's like, well, I need five times more people. And she knew that that wasn't the right answer. So came looking for an alternative. So at that, you know, depending where you are, if you want to get in investment, don't try and do everything for everybody. Double down in one place, make a difference, and then ask for money. And then, then the other piece is under, understand that this is going to be in the hands of every people manager. Like um, I did a webinar yesterday with Melissa Cantor from the Lego Group. She didn't launch to HR and then wait to see where it went. She went with HR to the business. It's in the hands of hundreds of their people managers. Because that's how you change the the outcome for the business. Lots of better decisions, not one big one. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, and I remember actually, you know, I spoke with uh, David Green uh, a couple of years back, who gave you know similar advice around like find find one problem. Like you can't tackle everything. Find one problem, do that well, solve that well. In many cases, the kind of problems you're going to solve are going to have a a revenue impact to the business, a monetary impact to the business. So it actually can become a revenue uh, or a cost-saving function when resourced well, but you can't you know, go after everything at once. So um, again, I, I think that's really helpful um, feedback for the viewers and listeners. Um, Ian, last question for you. You know, we're, we're kind of in this pivotal moment for HR. We're, you know, we're entering our third year of the pandemic. Obviously, it's, it's revolutionized a lot of the world of work broadly, let alone the HR and people function. Um, when you think about this moment of time, this this change, like you know, the future of work was yesterday. We can set that aside now. Now we're building something next. What gets you most excited for this opportunity for the field of HR to really, you know, redefine the very nature of work itself? The thing that I'll be quite honest, Lars, the things that get me excited is 
all of the stories that I, I hear, some of which are public and some of which aren't, from our customers who are changing the experience of work for their employees. Like, um, it, and it's, it's using the data. I'll, I'll, I'll share a real simple one. This was pre-pandemic, but the organization was changing its business focus. Um, and so finance said, well, we're going to shrink the resources that we can spend on people over here. So we need to fire this population or we need to fire this, a population that equates to, you know, this percent of our labor cost here because we don't need them anymore. The analytics team has said, hang on, let's just look at reputational risk. Let's look at cost of severance. Like, just let's look at this holistically. We get the finance target. Sure. Legitimate finance, finance target. But there's a whole people side of this that is just not in the decision. Give us a give us a minute. We'll get back to you. So they did the analysis. They looked at what would happen through, um, you know, natural attrition. Were there ways that people could be redeployed? So they hit the finance target. Only a week after, nobody got fired. And that is that's how we should be doing HR. It shouldn't be finance says and we follow. It's it's there's a, it's got to be an even conversation because again I've seen countless pieces of research where the finance decision actually costs more money because they've ignored the people component of the dynamic. Like people do not behave like robots. They have so much agency and so many opportunities to you know dance around any finance policy that like trying to control them is just the wrong idea. So the things that I'm excited for is like we've we've been through that whole learning phase. We know we've got proof we can bring these stories to bear, and we can actually make work better for people, and we can make employers more effective through that. Like it's a win-win. So I'm I'm just like I'm possibly more jazzed than I've ever been because the the awakening of the number of people, the the CEOs who see it this way, the the chief people officers who are charging down that path. You know, it used to be a rare few, and and you know, it's just it's a much larger population and there's real clarity that is necessary. So, you know, I'm just excited to be in the conversation, helping articulate it, helping people understand it and, and making progress. Cause I think it leads to a better world of work. Well, Ian, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, sharing your, uh, your wisdom, your data and your advice. I know it's going to be really valuable for viewers and listeners. So, um, thanks so much for being a part of the podcast. It's been a pleasure, Lars. All the best. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.